Now listen as God speaks his word to us from Luke 1, 26 through 38. In the sixth month, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will be with child and give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus. He will be great and will be, will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin? The angel answered, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age, and she who was said to be barren is in her sixth month for nothing is impossible with God. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May it be to me as you have said. Then the angel left her. This is the word of the Lord. What a wonderful passage we have uh, this morning. But whether you like it or not, you've grown up in a culture that says everything worth knowing, indeed everything that can lay claim to being true, must be verifiable or, or provable by our five senses. Right? What we can see, what we can measure, what we can uh, hear. Our culture will go on to say, if you want to believe in God, that's fine, but such belief can only ever be personal and private. It has no place in the real world where we all have to live together. The lone exception here, of course, is the insurance industry, which will refuse payments on claims where they've determined that the damage was due to an act of God. (laughs) Then we're all believers at that point. One of the first people to notice this fact of our culture was an English missionary to India named Leslie Newbegin. After spending more than 30 years overseas, Newbegin returned to his home in England and discovered what he called the fact-faith divide. Fact was public. Fact was what everybody acknowledged. Fact was what, if you were an intelligent person, you agreed to. Faith, however, was optional. Faith had to do with God. Faith had to do with the unseen supernatural realities. If you wanted to believe in him, fine, but it wasn't necessary. Life could be lived perfectly well just on the fact side. Now, the reason he noticed that was because in India, where he had lived for the last 30 years, that wasn't true. In fact, in the majority of the world today, that fact-faith divide doesn't apply. But it certainly does in the West, in North America, Europe, Australia, New Zealand, those places that we refer to commonly as, as the West. But then he noticed 
that this whole other world, the world of faith, where belief resides, is also, of course, where the gospel falls. It's the world of incarnation, of resurrection, of Pentecost, of Gabriel coming to visit the Virgin Mary. Now, we're used to hearing missionaries talk about the way people live in other countries, but Leslie Newbigin does us the favor of showing us how a missionary now sees the West, the country in which we have grown up and been educated where we now live. And the reason this is important to you and me this morning is simply this. As Christians, we fundamentally disagree with what our culture says about that fact-faith divide. We believe that reality, if we are to deal with the world as it really exists, as God really made it, has to include both the material and the spiritual. Material cause and effect and spiritual cause and effect. And for us this morning, in Jesus' birth, we have the coming together of the seen and the unseen, the material and the spiritual. Now, the seeds of Jesus' atoning work are found right here at the beginning, at his incarnation. For if Jesus is not fully human, the seen, then when he died on the cross, he could not have atoned for all of who we are, all of which has been broken by sin. There was uh, an early belief by some in the church that Jesus was fully hum human except for his mind. And, and they took that biblical phrase in John about the logos and said, well, that was the mind of Jesus. So he, he was fully human except for that mind. That was, that was divine. But the church decided very early, but wait a second. If Jesus died for everything except our mind, then there's a part of us that has never been atoned for. Your broken intellect, your broken mind has not been atoned for. So you really can't be saved by what Jesus did on the cross. On the other hand, if Jesus was not fully God, the unseen, then he could not have atoned for the sins of all people. If he wasn't divine, then his atoning work on the cross would only have covered himself and nobody else. But because he was divine, his atoning work was sufficient to cover everybody. The seen and the unseen had to be combined in the incarnation of Jesus in order for the atonement to be possible some 30 years later. This is what Fitz Allison, a, a wonderful bishop in the Episcopal Church and scholar, calls the cruelty of heresy. When you do not hold together the seen and the unseen uh, in Jesus' incarnation. So, as we look at Mary this morning, what we see is that she did not have that divide in her own life or in her own way of thinking. Indeed, the first thing I want to draw our attention to this morning in our text is this. Mary was afraid when Gabriel came, but she wasn't surprised. She was afraid, but she wasn't surprised by Gabriel's greeting. 
Mary's world, indeed the world of Scripture itself, is a world where angels visit people. Not often, but from time to time. It's not a daily occurrence, but it happened. And it can happen. So Mary was afraid that she was being visited by Gabriel, but she was not especially undone by it. Our text tells us that Gabriel says to Mary, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. Mary's questions did not have to do with who this angel is, what sort of creature he was, but rather what he meant when he said she was favored and that the Lord was with her. Now, wouldn't you be troubled by such questions too? Or more likely, would you be so freaked out that an angel, if even you recognized that it wasn't an angel, had suddenly shown up at your doorstep? But that's the real world. That's the world that God created. Our culture will try to talk about a hallucination or a dream or uh, a fantasy of some sort. But the Bible says, no, these things are real. Real. So what do we make of this? First, it's not likely that an angel is ever going to show up at your doorstep. Okay? It's probably not going to happen. You can now breathe a sigh of relief. However, the reason you ought not to expect an angel to show up is that you don't really need them to show up, do you? Why? Because God has already given you all the direction you need to do everything he has for you to do. There aren't going to be any more incarnations. So the angel Gabriel is not going to show up with that kind of a message ever again. It's not needed. God's heart desire for you is right there in Scripture for you to discover. You don't need to go anywhere else. And you don't need an angel to appear to you because you have the Holy Spirit in you to comfort, to guide, to nudge you towards greater and greater holiness and convict you of sin in order to experience God's forgiveness. Isn't it wonderful that God never convicts you of sin to make you feel guilty? He convicts you of sin so that you can experience the relief of being forgiven. Now, Satan will pile on. He'll try to make you feel guilty about a sin that you committed 10 years ago that you repented of and asked forgiveness of. He'll try to remind you of that and bring it up again and again because that's who he is. The Holy Spirit never does that. The Holy Spirit convicts you so that you'll repent and receive the gift of forgiveness, remembering that as far as the east is from the west, that's how far God has put your sin away from his own mind. Angels may appear from time to time, but look to the Bible and to the Holy Spirit for God's day-to-day guidance in your life. Well, Mary then lives in what the Bible describes as the real world of the seen and the unseen. But what does she learn from Gabriel? She learns that the child she'll conceive, um, that the child she will conceive uh, will come when the Holy Spirit comes upon her. Here's what Gabriel tells her. Behold, you'll conceive in your womb and bear a son, and he, you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he'll reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Well, so far so good. One problem remains, however. Mary is only engaged to Joseph. 
She's not married to him. And her question then is how she can conceive a child since she has no intention of being sexually intimate with Joseph until they are married. And the answer Gabriel gave to her had to be the most astounding of all that he had said to her that or any day. The Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. Now, two questions surround this account. The first is, how could Jesus be conceived in this way? What was the process? That question, friends, has no answer, at least no answer that we, we can give. But the second question is one we can answer, and that question is, why did Jesus' conception happen this way? And the answer again goes back to the reality of the seen and the unseen. Had Jesus been born according to the natural laws of human procreation, then he would only have been human, which means that like you and me, he would have been born with the inclination for an inevitable fall to sin. Hence the involvement of God the Holy Spirit in his incarnate birth means that Jesus took on human flesh without the taint of original sin. Such a theological concept, but so important. Jesus had to be born sinless in order to be the perfect Lamb of God who would be then able to atone for sins not his own, but yours and mine. How did all this happen? We don't know and we will never know. Why did it happen this way? In order that Jesus could be born fully human and fully divine and without original sin. Now, if you find this story far-fetched, you are not alone. Early in the history of the church, an unbeliever by the name of Celsus wrote that he had heard that Jesus was the illegitimate son of Mary and a Roman soldier by the name of Pantera. Very few scholars believe that this could be true, but it does show that the idea of a virgin birth has always been difficult to believe. Does it matter? Does it matter if Jesus was conceived in a supernatural way? Well, I believe it does. And for this reason. Almost everything in Scripture that goes to the heart of God's glory, his majesty, his goodness, involves what, for lack of a better word, I call mystery. When, for example, we consider the creation of all things out of nothing, we end up affirming something that not only don't we understand, but we can't understand. From nothing, by a simple word, there came into existence everything that we see. Now, we can look at something like the Big Bang Theory. It's a, it's a wonderful theory. If you've ever read anything about it, it's, it's, it's beautiful in very many ways. But something had to be there before the Big Bang could operate on it. How did that something get there? By the Word of God. Out of nothing, something was created. It's a mystery. Our minds aren't big enough to comprehend it and understand it, but 
stop and, and think for a moment, what if you could? Well, then God's not so great, is he? We can understand it perfectly. He's not that great a God. But we can't. Pointing us once again to the greatness and the wonder and the majesty of this God who then revealed himself to us in the incarnation. So what do we make of all this? Are you believing in something make-believe when you affirm the virgin birth of Jesus? No, you're not. Instead, you are affirming a great and wondrous mystery. And in affirming a great mystery, you are affirming that God, because he is God, is able to do what the human mind, as great as it is, simply can't explain or understand, using the tools of only the seen world. Material cause and effect cannot explain the incarnation of the virgin birth. It requires the cause and effect of the spiritual world to provide for it. But of course, how could it be otherwise? If we could explain it all, God becomes unnecessary. But there's one final point to consider this morning, and that is Mary's reaction. She says simply, let it be to me according to your word. Herein lies Mary's greatness. We Protestant Christians don't venerate Mary as our Roman Catholic and Orthodox brothers and sisters do, but we should. Consider, in all likelihood, Mary was a young girl, perhaps as young as 15 or 16. She was engaged to Joseph, so she knew how babies were conceived and born. Children were born in people's homes. There were no hospitals. Midwives oversaw birth in in a small village and in the small homes where people lived. Even children knew the facts of life. Mary also knew when she said, let it be to me according to your word, that people, neighbors, friends even, would think the worst. Joseph did. He knew that they would think the worst. His first reaction was to essentially divorce Mary in as kind a way as he could, but he was brokenhearted because he assumed Mary had been unfaithful. It would take the visit from another angel to convince Joseph of the truth of the mystery of Jesus' conception. And Mary had to know that few of her neighbors would believe her story. Why would they? They knew of girls who had gotten into such trouble before, more likely being, from being forced or, or coerced than by an immoral choice. But in that highly patriarchal culture, women still bore the blame, unfair as that has always been. And indeed, Jesus would later, in one of the most famous episodes on, in all of Scripture, refuse to condemn a woman caught in the very act of adultery refused to impose upon her or acquiesce in the imposition of the death penalty by stoning that the people around were all too willing to do. Perhaps at that moment he was thinking of his own mother and what she might have been subjected to herself by neighbors. I like to think so. If we are honest with ourselves, who among us could honestly say that we would respond to Gabriel's message as Mary did, let it be to me according to your word? 
Jesus defined a, a disciple as someone who obeyed everything he taught us to do. In other words, Jesus wants coachable followers. The bane of every coach's existence is the player who thinks he or she already knows everything they need to know. But they love the talented athlete who also is humble enough to accept coaching. As we consider all that Jesus taught us to do, do we respond, let it be to me according to your word? Or do we act like the know-it-all athlete who never rises above mediocrity? That is why Mary deserves our veneration. A young girl willing to do whatever her heavenly father asked her to do. Mary should be one of your heroes today. Mary should be one of the believers that you should be looking to as an example of how to live your own life today. Indeed, Mary will become an author of Scripture, as we'll see next week as we look at her Magnificat. Friends, in the real world, God created a world of the seen and unseen, the material and the spiritual, that requires an understanding of both if we want to live lives of integrity and purpose, we need to be more and more like Mary. Let her be your model. Let her be your mentor this Advent season that you might experience the good news of the gospel. Amen.